Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. Let's turn in our Bibles to the Old Testament. We're going to go to the book of Psalms this morning. And we're going to be spending our time together this morning in Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is one of my favorite psalms. It has been for a long time one of my favorite psalms. We see honesty in this psalm as Asaph bears his heart out before the Lord and before all people. Here we are thousands of years later and we are still looking at the struggle that Asaph went through. As you're turning there to Psalm 73, let me ask a couple of questions just to help us do a little diagnostics on our own heart. When was the last time that you felt that God was distant in your life? When was the last time that you have been tempted to doubt the goodness of God or the wisdom of God? When was the last time that you were tempted or maybe you even succumbed to the temptation to wallow in self-pity? That you were so preoccupied with what you were going through that really what anybody else was going through made no difference to you. Preoccupation with self leads to depression. It leads to the dissolution of wonderful relationships because we stop thinking about anybody else. We're thinking only of self. And we know we're in a prison. We know we're down a long tunnel, but we don't know the way out. Or maybe we do, and we begin to assess that that will cost too much of my pride, and I'm not going that way. So we keep digging ourselves into a deeper and darker place of despair. Well, the question then is, is there any way out? And the answer from Scripture is yes, absolutely. And we see this unfold in our psalm today. The Bible says in Ephesians that God is working all things together according to the counsel of His will, but we can't always see that He is working. But if we're in Christ, we know without a doubt that he is working, but we're frustrated when we can't see how he's working. So can we learn to take refuge in the Lord when we don't comprehend all of his ways? Can we learn to trust his heart when we can't see his hand at work in our lives? Asaph wrestled with all of these questions in this psalm, and then he recorded it. He wrote it down. He just threw open the door of his closet and brought out all the skeletons and put them in Scripture. I find this helpful. This is not, do not enter the crime scene, stay away. He simply throws open the doors and brings in the light to deal with all of the junk in his mind and in his heart 
and in his life. He wrote his record of how he struggled with envy and how he came out of that dark prison. This is helpful to us. So the question that the sermon title asks this morning is, is God enough? And we're going to seek to answer that question from the psalm. Is God enough? Do we see Asaph's circumstances change or do we see Asaph change? And what led to this change? Psalm 73 there in your Bibles. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind, therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you have set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. Oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. This morning, from this text, we're going to take away from Asaph here five choices Five choices to avoid spiritual disaster. What can we learn from this Asaph? 
There's five choices. And they're all connected one to the next, to the next, to the next. First of all, we learn this from Asaph in verses 1 and 2. Be honest about our doubt and weakness. Be honest. Don't hide your struggle from God or from those who love Him and love you. Don't hide. Asaph knew the truth about God, and he said it in verse 1. And you can almost hear the disconnect in this psalm where he says, truly, God is good to Israel. Okay, so he is answering, if you will, in the Sunday school answer. You know, remember that as children, you know, God, Jesus, the Bible. Okay, let's try something else now. Okay, he's saying, truly, I've heard it said, I know this is true, to those who are pure in heart, God is good to those who are pure in heart. He knows the truth. He knows the message. He can tell others the truth. Perhaps he's led others in the truth. But right now he's wrestling with what he understands about God and what he knows about God. And it's not adding up in his own heart and life. Does he fully believe what he believes about God? Now in Psalm 37, flip 73 around to 37, there's a corresponding psalm. Just turn back there, Psalm 37. We're not going to take time to go through the whole psalm. But if I'm honest, I would have an easier time preaching Psalm 37. Because in Psalm 37, there's no wrestling with how does this truth work out. It just says it's true. Psalm 37, it's just statement of truth after statement of truth. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. See, it's all instruction. They will soon fade like the grass, wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord. Do good. Dwell in the land. Be, uh, befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself. It's a complete commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him. He will reward. All of this is like Proverbs when it sounds like if you live a righteous life, shouldn't everything go well? But then there's this book that we have to wrestle with and is titled after the one who had it all and lost it all, and his name is Job. And it's the counterbalance to Proverbs where things fall apart in the lives of those who are truly worshiping and seeking God. So yes, sometimes the Lord uses disciplinary actions in our lives to get our attention, but sometimes we suffer simply because we live in a fallen world and it's filled with brokenness and we encounter it all the time everywhere. So if we go back to Psalm 73, here, you could almost hear, he said, I heard what David said in 37. I I believe that to be true, but but do I believe that to be true? I'm not experiencing this. If I'm wrestling like this, can I be classified pure in heart if I question God or his ways? The spiritual condition of the human heart is the primary focus of this psalm. So here's the truth in Psalm 37. Here's the psalmist wrestling with the truth that's not adding up in his own heart, his own life, his own experience. What controls your heart this morning? When you shift into neutral at the end or the beginning of a day and you just revolt, you know, revert back to what you love, what is that controlling factor of your heart, of your mind? Whatever controls our heart gets everything else. What's the condition of your heart right now this morning, loved ones? 
Have you been made pure in heart? Do you need to be made pure in heart? Jesus said, Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The psalmist is saying, I'm wrestling. I'm not seeing God. I know what God has said, but I'm not seeing that in here or in here or in my life. I have a problem here, God. Loved ones, trials and testing will be part of our lives. And so the temptation is always run from God. Doubt God's goodness. Take confidence in your own. Uh, Listen to the advice. Get another book, another self-help. Try this, try that. Run here, run there. But the psalm says, run to the safest, best place that you and I can possibly go, and that is go to God. Bring your doubts, bring your weaknesses, and go to God with them. He's not afraid of you or of me asking why or how long. How long, O Lord? You'll see that in the Psalms. How long? How long? How long? How long? But he goes to God with that. He doesn't run to others for that. So not only was Asaph completely transparent in his prayer to the Lord, but he's also transparent with the people of God because his experience wasn't corresponding to the truth. I've heard it. Truly God is good to Israel. I know that. I've told people that to those who are pure in heart. But let me tell you about my story. That's verse two. But as for me, I've got a problem here. My feet, now, in the, in the rest of verse two, we see a little glimpse of the rest of the psalm. He says, my feet, and these are important words, had almost stumbled. There's a lot of difference between almost stumbled to going all the way down. And my steps had nearly slipped. So here we have a little glimpse of what's going to work out in the psalm so that the people of God will say, well, wait a second. I want to know how to, make a spir- how to miss the spiritual disaster in my life. I don't want to have, I want to avoid a spiritual disaster. And it sounds to me like this guy can help me so that my feet don't stumble completely. So that my steps, I don't go all the way down. I think I need to listen to him. The psalmist is working through doubts. He's working through frustrations with God and with God's plan. So how do we respond to our own limitations, to our own frustrations? There's, a, there's some options. We can ignore them. What problems? Right? Just, just push it, suppress it. Sadly, this is where people will self-medicate through alcohol, through drugs, through work, through you name it, pleasure, and just forget about this brokenness that's in here and I will just check out. But it doesn't solve the problem. It compounds it. Then there's another option. We can spiritually disguise the problems. We walk into a gathering like this and someone says, how you doing? Bless the Lord, brother, I'm doing well. I could be doing worse, but I'm doing all right. And inside, we're imploding. But we just came off with the, you know, oh, something and nobody knows what to do with that. So they're like, okay, I, mean, I don't know. 
I'm going to ask your wife about that. See what she says. See if she answers that. Listen, let's talk to your kids. I'll be, I'll be serving in kids' church a little bit later. Let me talk to them and see how, if you're blessed the Lord, it's all well. Sometimes we can say things like, well, there's always people that have it worse than I do. While that may be true, it's always not most helpful. That, that doesn't deliver us from the bondage that we're in. Now we start feeling guilty that we, or am I being arrogant that I'm not suffering? Why not me? And am I ignoring that God is sovereign over those who have less than I do? Then what's going on there? So we have these little cliches that we can use and say, but they don't get to the heart like this guy gets to the heart. I was going down. I was thinking wrongly. Sometimes, with problems, yes, we can ignore them, suppress them through addictions. We can spiritualize them. Bless the Lord, I'm fine, it's all good. But sometimes we can obsess over them. So that if we're talking with anybody for for two minutes, we're getting to that thing that's controlling us right now. That our focus is always and only on that problem, that problem, and this problem, and, and you need to know about this problem and this problem, and it, that problem begins to define us. And we look at God through the lens of the problem. We're not looking at the problem through the lens of the character and the goodness of God revealed in Scripture. We see everything by that problem. Turn, uh, turn in your Bibles to John 5. John chapter 5, we see a guy illustrated like this in I didn't plan for it to come up in our reading today. Those of you that have done the yearly reading, I thought, well, that's surprising. There it is, right? John chapter 5. The Lord is always better at planning than I am. Contrary to how I joke from time to time. In verse 2, Now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades, and these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, now, look, now just listen to the question that Jesus asked the guy who's been on a mat for 38 years. Do you want to be healed? Now, don't turn the screen yet. Hold it at seven, right? Uh, verse six, lying there. No, six. Do you want to be healed? What do you think the question, the answer to that question should be? Yes, it's really, it seems very straightforward. It sounds like when you hear politicians being asked questions by reporters, you know, or sometimes in court scenes where someone asks a very blunt, basic question that's a yes or no, but the attorney speak starts coming out, right? And they don't want to answer that question because it's just really obvious. So, well, that's an interesting question. I'm glad you asked that question, but they're not glad you asked the question. Jesus asked this man a very straightforward question. Do you want to get off the mat? Do you want to be healed? Verse 7, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, oh, I'd love to hear the tone of Jesus in this one. (laughs) Get up. Take your bed and walk. 
And at once the man was healed and took up his bed and walked. Okay. What faith did this guy have? To all those in the health, wealth, and prosperity movement that say you got to sow the seed of faith and then God will match your seed of faith and bless you. And if it doesn't happen, it's your fault. What faith did this guy have? It's none. They see him on the Sabbath day carrying his mat, which he hasn't done for 38 years, and they're not saying, look at you carrying your mat. This is incredible. How did this happen? They say, oh, oh, he's, he's carrying his mat on the Sabbath day. And they say, why are you doing this? And he says, uh, the guy that told me to get up off my mat told me to take up my mat and carry it. Don't leave a mess by the pool. Make my bed. There you go, moms. There's your biblical basis. He said, take my bed. So I figured the guy that told me to get, you all never told me to get up off my mat. He told me get up off my mat and take my mat. So that's what I did. Who did this? His answer? I don't know. The guy that told me to I was just thinking I'm the guy on the mat. I'm always on the mat. Nobody helps me off the mat. I can't get in the pool. Poor me. Woe is me. He goes on to the temple and Jesus finds him. And Jesus tells him these words. Your life needs to change. I'm paraphrasing. paraphrasing, Or you're going to have more to give account for than if I would have left you on the mat. Now here's the thing. Jesus is asking him, if I take away this mat and this 38-year problem from you, are you going to have anything else to talk about? Do you know anyone that if you talk to them very long, it's always going to go back to the event? Maybe this is painful because it might be us. The thing, the person, I was done wrong. They didn't treat me right. This is what they should have done. And they're owned by that event, that awful trial. We're not dismissing that this man wasn't in sorrow and in pain and having a difficult life. He's simply owned by that until he met Jesus. And interestingly enough, he, he, he then goes and finds him. Like, it was Jesus. You're looking for the guy that healed me and broke the Sabbath? It was Jesus. And more trouble and persecution is heaped upon Jesus because that guy just went and in some sense kind of just ratted him out. There's a lot of loose ends in that account. Here's Asaph back in Psalm 73. He's wrestling with his standing before God. He's wrestling in the presence of the people of God and he's being honest and he's being humble. Can I encourage you, loved ones, be authentic about the struggles that you're going through? But you're going somewhere in those troubles, and that is how will God be glorified in this trial I'm in? It's not for nothing. How is he refining me and making me more like Christ? And Romans 8.28 is the best medicine when I apply it to my own heart. I can't give Romans 8.28 to someone else in a trial if they're wrestling and they don't believe in the goodness of God or maybe they don't love God and then I I just throw Romans 8.28 at them like a spiritual dagger and then they feel guilty because they're doubting this. 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. I believe that, but I have to preach that to my own heart. That isn't the first verse that I lead out with when someone else's sorrow, going through a time of great sorrow or suffering. I don't lead with that verse, but I know that verse and I believe that verse. And so I pray for someone who's struggling, like Asaph, that they would come to also agree with God about that verse and say, Lord, I'm so far from from understanding and experiencing that verse, but I trust you. Help me. That's how I'm praying for someone. And that's how we pray for one another because just as I deliver this message, I could be struggling like Asaph in the coming days and needing people to, to pray for me in such a way. So he's honest, he's humble. His confidence and faith in the Lord is struggling. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. I grew up in Montana, river streams everywhere, mountain streams, and that cold, clear water runs down. And you know what is in a lot of those streams? Mossy rocks. You cannot stand well on those rocks. Trust me, all right? You try to cross a stream and keep your pants dry, it's not not easy to do going from rock to rock. This one's dry. This one's above the, oh, that one's under the water. It's a nice, good-sized boulder. I think I'll be all right. (laughs) My feet were on something slimy. Down you go. My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly... Number two, not only should we be honest about our doubts and weaknesses, but observe the downward spiral of deception. In verses 3 through 15, we hear, we read, we can see how the psalmist was going down. He gives us the backstory. Whenever our perspective is being shaped by our experiences or our feelings, we're in trouble. The life of the Apostle Peter could parallel this psalmist. He was up, he was down. He was saying good things. Well, you are the Christ. Skip the cross. Jesus, get behind me, Satan. I was doing so, whoop. Good, what happened? In verses 3 through 12, he expounds where his focus was preoccupied. He was looking around. He was looking at all the people around him. He took his eyes off the Lord, started focusing on the appearances of prosperity in the lives of the wicked, and he just flat out admits, I was being envious of those who are set against God. The people that hate God, I started wanting to be like them. Does that hit close to home? He was tempted to turn his back on the Lord and run. And so he just airs out his laundry. Verses three through five, it just looks like they're all doing so well. I mean, I look at them, I see them on the covers of magazines. I see them, you know, in social media posts. I see them in all these. You see celebrities, you see athletes, musicians, influencers are all type. Do you see the cars they have? Do you see the house, the houses, the, the, all that they have? Do you see all that wealth? You see all the jewelry? You see all the, they're just, I mean, 
they're incredible. You see the powerful people, they're on Forbes, they're at the top business, they're, you know, they have the, the private jets and the places and they're the trendsetters. Everywhere they go, they're powerful in business or they're powerful in politics and they seem to be untouchable. Seems like you can't ever trap them. They're like slimy, you know, and you can't ever really nail it down to who is this person and what have they done right and what have they done wrong. They always seem out of reach by authorities. The people who are super intelligent, I guess we could call them nerds, right? And they own the world because they're so brilliant and smart. So they don't care what you think about them and their glasses or a pocket protector or whatever else they have because their brains are uber genius. They think in platitudes that we'd say, what? And they're like, oh, that, that's just easy to me. Those who are blessed with beauty or strength or stature and they seem to be set apart and iconic. It's like they don't ever age. They're just amazing. Look at the strength and look how tall they are and look what they can do on whatever the athletic field is and they're idolized. They're worshipped. The psalmist is like, I was right there buying the ticket. It appears in verses 6 through 9 it's like they can get away with murder. That's what he describes. Pride is their necklace. Violence. They don't hide it. They flaunt it. They get elected because they want to murder the unborn. They don't hide it anymore. They parade it and they shove it in your face, whether it be a governor or a president or whoever and they say, I'm not hiding it anymore. And what are you going to do about it? And he's saying, Lord, it seems like they just get away with it. We're approaching 70 million unborn abortions that we know of since I was born in this country. Shouldn't bad things happen to bad people? Lord, because it seems like they're getting away with everything. And right here in this psalm is the old kid's little refrain. When you give their brother or sister that much more juice than they got. That's not fair. Stop everything. Sister has more M&Ms than me. Right? That's the psalmist, only he's dealing with really big issues here. It seems in verses 10, 11, and 12, Lord, do you even notice what is going on? Do you care about what is going on? I mean, they live lives of sin. They're, they're leading other people into sin. They, they live like there's no, no God. I do whatever I want. There's nothing coming against me. There's no judgment coming. How does God know? Where is he at? Foolish living. The fool has said in his heart, there's no God, the psalmist says. Foolish living attempts to mock God and demands justice and judgment, but it's always for everybody else. 
Peter learned this lesson. He wrote to the believers, 2 Peter 3, 9, where is God? Why doesn't the Lord deal with this? And he said, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward, wait a second, toward me, toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and reach repentance. The Lord is not weak. The Lord is not disconnected. The Lord is not ignorant of all the evil and sin and wrong that is done. He handles it all. He bears it all. It's before him and he can't look at it, but he's patient with you. Because if I was saying, Lord, why don't you deal with that wicked, those wicked people in that wicked situation, what am I ignoring, church? The guy I see in the mirror every day. Oh, Lord, that's different. You know, you should be patient with me. Why? Why? He's been patient with me. He's been patient with you. And, and he is long, he's working toward the salvation of all that he has sovereignly chosen. They will come to faith. So it's his timing, not mine. And if you're like me, sometimes that messes with us because I want to be king. I want to set the timetables. I want it to be done here and there and now and done. There it is. But life doesn't always work like that. Then he moves inward. So he's looking around. And then he turns the tables to look inside his own heart and he realizes there's no help found here either. It wasn't helpful when I looked around at all the wicked. He's going down, he's going down, he's going down. And then he says, well, then I started looking in my own heart and then he starts doubting. He's double-minded here, all in vain. Have I kept my heart clean, washed my hands in innocence? For all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked. You hear, you hear this tone? You see how many times he's talking about himself? I, 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 right? You can hear the, the, the whining, like that he's bringing, oh, in vain, I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence for all the day long. I've been stricken and rebuked. You're after me. You're chasing me down, Lord, every day. And if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the children. I'm trying to hold it together here, Lord. I'm doing good and you're not. Where are you? You hear that? He, he's on his way down. C.S. Lewis said it this way. God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. As he wrote, and he was on the airwaves throughout England and the UK during a time of war when people thought, we, we have brought God down to earth and we're going to make everything through industry and education and we've solved all the problems. And then the war broke out. Oh, he's expressing all of his doubt. Have you, have you ever felt that? What the psalmist is dealing with? Why am, why am I serving here at church all the time? Why do, I've did this, and I've done that, and I used to do this, and I used to do that. And where did that get me? If those people only knew, whatever, fill in the blank. That's what the psalmist is saying. Have I wasted my time? Have I wasted my life? 
Maybe sometimes as parents, you can feel that like, look, all we've done for you, and this is how you respond. Yeah, but we're imperfect. As parents, sometimes we, we need to rethink what we've said and what we've done. But the Lord, he's perfect in all of his ways. So he's discouraged. You're after me, Lord. He's holding God responsible here. And yet the Lord seems distant. The Lord is telling him a no right now. And in parenting, no is a good thing to your kids. Not all the time. My wife teases me about it. I'm Captain No in our family. I'm always the fun governor. But you, we actually have to have the balance because that's part of life is learning to say no, not right now. And we're going to wait. And then there are times when we work together to say, actually, that was kind of a dumb no. That was a wasted no. Let's save it for a time when it is necessary. But the Lord doesn't get it wrong, and the Lord doesn't ever have to have a counsel on the side. Mom and dad, time out. We're going to talk this thing over, and we'll come back. The Lord doesn't have to do that. But the psalmist is saying, I think you need to do that, Lord. I think you need to have a little counsel meeting in heaven and rework how you're running my life. I know nobody here has ever felt this way, right? Okay, good, I'm in good company. I can tell by that uncomfortable laugh. The Lord says, we studied this in Revelation 3.19. I promise we will get back to Revelation. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Change your mind, change your heart, change your actions. A complete change. In verse 15, we see the psalmist is dealing and wrestling with disappointment. What's going to happen for... What's going to happen to me if I'm feeling all this way going down and I say this to the Lord, now what's he going to do to me? <laughs> is he going to pull out the big guns on me now? Like, is, uh, is it okay? Can I bring this kind of an edgy prayer to the Lord? Can I bear this all out to the God of heaven? He's disappointed. In verse 15, if I had said I would speak thus, I would have betrayed the children, the generation of your children. What's going to happen to me for saying things like this? The church has always suffered at the hands of the wicked. You hear what he's saying? Enough already, God. And the psalmist is admitting here, there's a problem with my thinking. I know there's a problem with my thinking. I know my eyes are not where they should be. I know I'm looking at circumstances and people all around me. I know there's no help there. I've looked inside and there's no help there. He's like Peter when he's going down, Matthew 14, 30. Peter saw the wind. Where was he looking before? Jesus. If it's you, Jesus, let me walk to you on the water. Come on, Peter. What? Out of the boat, walking. Whoa. And then he, whoa, the waves. And he starts to sink. And immediately, he has to cry out for help. Lord, save me. And Jesus is right there. The psalmist is saying, my eyes are looking everywhere, but not on you. And just like the Lord was right there for Peter, and what didn't he do to Peter? Peter, have you learned your lesson this time? You know, Peter, I'm not going to do this again, buddy. No more. This is it, man. No more chances here. 
Isn't that, I mean, come on. Now I can see my own heart as a parent doing that. I've done that plenty of times. And then I usually have a spouse that's right along. Like, now would be a good time to just hug and shut up. I don't need the lecture right now. But I have such a good lecture for this moment. It's the one I've been given in my own head to my own shortcomings for decades now. Maybe to work on this one. Lord, save me. Gotcha. And immediately they're at the boat. Oh, that's love. That's grace. That's mercy. That's power. That's authority. No, Jesus never gave it all to Peter and Keys. It's in the gospel. So where does everything change? It's been said we worship our way into sin and we worship our way out of sin. Everything changes in this psalm in the next two verses. See, religion says it this way, I've sinned, I need to hide from my father. But the gospel and the grace of God, the person who's been affected and changed by that and owned by the gospel says, I've sinned, I need to run to my father. Where else would I go? I need to run to my Father. So number three, bring our struggle to the Lord and worship. This is what happens in these two verses. This is where the whole, everything changes and really nothing changes. Circumstances don't change here. God transforms our hearts and our lives and our minds when we put him first and we seek him first. So we fight this battle most effectively when we're on our knees and we're doing what you're doing here today and you're coming to worship with the people of God. I, no doubt. Somebody I'm looking at here, you got up this morning and there was about 10 other things that you said, you know, I could do, I should do, I should probably do. <sighs> All right. I'll go to church. Maybe, maybe you're wrestling with all the things the psalmist is wrestling here, and you said, but I'm, I'm going to go to church. I'm going to gather with the people of God. The psalmist arrives at a stalemate here, okay? When he says, uh, verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. I, I, I just don't even know what to do. His dilemma is extended beyond his understanding, his lowest point here. Now what do you do? Is God afraid? of this kind of honesty, this kind of helplessness? No, not at all. Old Testament, 2 Chronicles 20, verse 12. They're facing a great horde. And this prayer, O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We have no power. We have no ideas. We have no strength. We have no wisdom. We have no might. But here's what we're doing, Lord. Our eyes are on you. And what did Peter say? 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your anxieties, all your cares on him. Why? Because he cares for you. He cares for you. That's what the psalmist is doing here. He's taking all of his anxiety, all of his frustration, all of his anger, all of his doubts, all of his depression and dysfunction, and he's saying, Lord, here, help, rescue me. In verse 17, we see the shift. I was at a stalemate, verse 16. I was stuck. I was stubborn. I was broken. I was at the bottom. I was going nowhere. And then 
Here's where it all changed until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Everything changes when he goes to worship. It's a complete 180 degree transformation. I remember in uh, children's storybooks when I was a kid, I remember I had one book that had train stations, like trains and all kinds of trains. And then, then there was the turnstile where the, the locomotive would come in, the engine would come in, and then here were the repairs all around that turnstile. And that train would come in and they could turn the track and shove it into bay one. And then they could move the track and get the engine out of three. And they could turn that engine around and send it out. It came in this way, went in, got repaired, came out, turned, went this way. That's completely what happens in this psalm. He's broken, he's messed up, he, he chooses to go to worship. He gathers with the people of God under the word of God. And then he's transformed and he comes out going a complete opposite direction. Everything changes in this verse. His perspective has changed. He fights against doubt. He fights against despair and depression, refusing, now listen to me, to be isolated from the people of God. And that's the most inviting temptation there is, especially for those who battle with depression and anxiety, is I don't want to go today because I don't want to talk to people. I don't want anybody to ask me because I don't want to be honest. And so this is where prayer that is genuine and authentic and real and to the Lord is, Lord, I don't want to go today. I don't want people to ask me my business today. But I am going to go to the house of the Lord with the people of God, and I'm going to put my frail body and mind under the preaching of the word, and I'm going to trust you to bring your word and accomplish everything that you intend for it to accomplish in this broken, messed up heart right here. We don't have to hide it. We don't have to dismiss it. We don't have to deny it. We bring it to the Lord. And there we find a perfect, perfect, eternal, righteous, good father saying, come here. What doesn't he already know about us? He knows everything about me. He knows everything. What's he running from? He's not hiding. We hide. We run. We bury like you know, squirrels all over my yard burying nuts everywhere and they forget where they are. I'm not much smarter. And the Lord all the while, like Jesus with Peter, I'm right here, Peter. Lord, save me. That's, all, that's it. And it won't be the last time, Pete. Matter of fact, I'll be calling you Simon a few days from now. Hebrews 10. Verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, all of this is, should be intimidating on us right now. This great high priest over the house of God. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart full of, in full assurance of faith. And with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the, the day drawing near. 
I've read this scripture many times with just the verse like, let us consider how to stir away. Let's not forsake the assembling. But you have to understand the context. The why would we gather with our brothers and sisters in Christ? Because we have a great high priest. And we don't have it all together, but he does. And if he is holding me, I'll be okay. If he's holding you, you're going to be okay. So number four, experience the upward deliverance through the truth. And in these verses, 18 to 26, everything changes. And now he sees the wicked through the lens of the character and the justice and the mercy and the righteousness and holiness of God. Truly, you set them in... What was I thinking? They're, they're all stand... All they have to stand on is mossy rocks. Oh, my job, my talent, my sport, my ability, my mind, my, my wealth. And then the stock market crashes, and what do you have? No reason to live if that's where your faith, hope, trust is centered upon. They're destroyed in a moment. They're swept away utterly by terrors like a dream. And he's like, he's picturing God, and he, he uses this terminology like, oh, I'm seeing, like, like the Lord was... He, he wakes up to all that's going on, not that God ever sleeps, but he's saying it's going to happen one day that the Lord will appear to all humanity like he has been distant, like he has been sleeping, like Jesus was in the boat, and then all of a sudden in a moment, he's going to come to judge, and no one will question his judgment and my soul was embittered and I was pricked in heart. I was brutish. Now you see how he's talking about himself? I was thinking like, like an ox. Okay, what do animals live for? Food, sex, procreation, uh, sleep, and play. Do you have a pet? That's all they care about. And when it comes to an animal that's headed for slaughter, they don't know what's coming. They don't care about what's coming. They can't comprehend what's coming. And the psalmist is saying, I was envying people that are headed for the combine of God's judgment. What was I thinking and how can I be helpful to them if I'm envying their position? Now he's under deep conviction. And then he brings, you see, repentance here. I was brutish. I was ignorant in verse 22. And then it's like, it's like the clouds part. And you see, it's like, nevertheless, here's, here's what I have. I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. I'm not holding on to you. You're holding me. I was slipping and I nearly went down. Why didn't I go down? Why didn't you go down in that trial? Right here. You were holding my right hand. That's why he didn't fall. It isn't because he pulled himself up by the bootstraps and he listened to more positive messages, and he figured his way out. That won't ever work. You have to do what Peter said, Lord, save me. And when you say, Lord, save me, and you stop fighting the God that made you, you know what he does? He says, I've got you. And then he grabs your right hand, and then we still stumble, and we still struggle, and we still falter. But guess who's holding your right hand? The one who holds everything in his hand. His grip is much better than ours, dad's. He doesn't ever let go or go down himself and hope our kids hold us up. You know, oops, didn't plan on that. I didn't know that was going to happen. Hebrews 13, 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
Some of you remember Linda Sturman. That was her verse. All the trials that woman went through. And she would say over and over and over. What did she say? Who remembers? He never let me walk alone. Over and over and over. The Lord's never let me walk alone. The Lord's never let me walk alone. It's this verse. It's this reality. The psalmist is saying, you've never abandoned me. I thought you were distant, but you weren't. And he says, I have whom I have in heaven but you. Now he's going beyond just the people that he's looking at around this earth. He's saying, in heaven I have you. There's nothing on earth I desire beside you. Can you say that? Have you said that? Do you believe that? That there's nothing, not your wife, not your husband, not your children, not your job, not your health, not your address, not what? Nothing. There's nothing I want more than you, God. And I want my wife and my children and my community and this world to have you. So spend my life. I'll spend my life so that people will know this God because he's that good and that worthy. He says, my heart and my flesh may fail. It will fail. He says, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What's changed in his circumstances? Nothing. It's his perspective when he went to worship and he preached the gospel to his heart again and he believed that the truth that he believed, but now he's believing it much deeper. I have you. There's no kingdom coming to unsettle you. Jesus said in John 8, 32, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And it ends up in our fifth choice. Tell others about the severity and salvation of the Lord our God. We don't just have a one-sided message, loved ones. Jesus is not just to help you have a better life, fix your marriage, fix your children, fix your situation, whatever it is. No, no. The Lord is just, and He is the justifier of all who come to Him. So all of humanity is divided into two categories, those who trust in the Lord and those who trust in someone or something else, including their own heart, their own mind, their own thoughts. And this is perfectly expressed in what used to be one of the world's most well-known verses, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. There are the two different people. Perishing is hell. Eternal life with God. Separated from God with God. It's the two polar opposite outcomes all based upon the Son of God and your response to Jesus. And that is exactly what the psalmist does here at the end of the psalm. For behold, he says in verse 27, those who are far from you shall perish, just like John 3.16 you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Judgment is coming for them. And I was envying them. I wasn't praying for them. I wasn't talking to them. I wasn't concerned for them. I was pitying me. Wanting to trade places with them. 
Retribution is coming for their sin and the rebellion against God. And so what does he end? This whole psalm then ends with the resolution that he says, you know, early on in the psalm, I said, uh, yeah, truly that God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet, and let me tell you about me, and let me tell you about my problem. But you see how it ends? For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. Why? That I may tell of all your works. He's not paralyzed anymore. He's not stuck and preoccupied on himself anymore. Now everything has changed and nothing's changed. He has changed. That is what God does in trials, refining us, loved ones. Even through my own struggles with temptation, that when I confess and own that sin to the Lord, then I love him more, I'm forgiven by him, and I hate my sin more. Romans 10 verse 9. Paul says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What is it? Lord, save me. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, and look at this now, 11 is often overlooked, but the 11 is, is, is just so key in here. It's like, the, it's like the diamond in the setting. The scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be, in your Bible might say, disappointed, let down. He's never let me down. We just sang that. Even if they, and they did, they chopped off the apostles, his head. And you know what he said the next breath in heaven? Lord didn't fail me. Oh, let me tell you how often I failed him. But he never failed me. Will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls, read it with me, on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you called on the name of the Lord? You see these, the summary of these choices? Number one really goes with number five. There's a chiasm in this psalm. One and five go together. Two and four go together. Three is the whole resolution. This is where everything changes in the psalm. One, be honest about our doubts and weaknesses. Five, tell others about the severity and salvation. He's still honest about weaknesses. He's just now devoted to the Lord. Now on the way down, he says, let me tell you how I was going down. I was being deceived. I was being fooled. I was being tricked by my own mind and by people around me. And there was no help coming. And then I went to worship, and this is the way up. This is the way out. It's through, it's through Christ. It's through God. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. And now he's moving forward. He's not stuck anymore. He's not so preoccupied with self. Now he's preoccupied with God. Use me that I can tell everyone that you can have God in heaven as the strength of your heart and your portion unlike any other thing you have forever. So his resolution, is God enough? Oh, he's more than enough. He's my everything. And I'm just wondering, is God enough for you? Can you say that with the psalmist? Oh, he's not just enough. He's my everything. And we will in time lose our eyesight, lose our hair, lose our mobility, Lose our ability to think and reason. 
Sometimes we lose our ability to eat. Might lose our ability to drive, to walk. And others, like when we were born, will begin to care for us. But if you have God, you haven't lost anything ultimately. Because He is holding you and you, if you know Christ, belong to him. If you know Christ, do you know him today? Is he enough for you today? Then let's join the psalmist and tell of all his works. Will you stand with me? Lord, we are desperately needy for you. We are helpless and hopeless without you. And many of us here this morning, we, we belong to you. You've saved us. And we've gone through, or maybe we're there, wrestling with real struggles and doubts. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your spirit. I thank you for your church. I thank you for my small group where I can enter and just engage with people that I love and love you and we love one another. and We can just go through life together. And Father, I pray, I pray that this number would continue to grow of people who have taken refuge in you. So God, reshape our hearts, reshape our minds, and by your strength and your spirit, help us to live with the truth that whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And we want that message to be proclaimed to everyone. So help us in this, Lord, for the honor and glory of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved.